Open Field Radio. Like, subscribe, share, and review wherever podcasts are found. Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Where ag and life collide. Brought to you by Gowan. Carl McDonald, he's in West Texas growing saffron, and it ain't easy. We talk it all right now. Hello, America, and a growing audience around the world. Welcome to Open Field Radio, raising the hip factor in agriculture. You know what? It doesn't get any hipper than this. Go out there, listen to every other show you want to. This is where the hip factor lives. And it's an egg. Who knew, right? If you made it this far into the show today, stick around because this episode is really fantastic. And what's fantastic about it isn't just the nuts and bolts of what the subject is today, but it's the underlying story of that perseverance and stick-to-itiveness that you go, wow, because you know what? Hard work does pay off. My guest today, Carl McDonald, yep, he's growing saffron. And the backstory to this is I got a message from a friend of mine that says, check this out. It was an article out of a Texas periodical that said, you know, these people are growing saffron and blah, blah, blah. I was like, who grows saffron? And first of all, what is it? I mean, I know what it is, but really? Come on. And secondly, who else grows it? And if so, where and why West Texas? It's all in here, but there's a much bigger story in here than just that. So stick around for Carl. It's a really cool episode. Just want to say thank you to all of you, the listeners, for participating with OpenFieldRadio.com. The traffic there continues to grow, and it's pretty exciting, I have to admit. If you haven't found it yet, well, there you go. Check it out. OpenFieldRadio.com. It's got all the shows. It's got pictures from the shows. It's got it's, it's a website. I don't have to tell you about that. And it yeah, it's for the show. So there you go. You know all about it now. Check it out when you get a chance. But you know what? I want to know, what do you want to hear on the show? We got guests lined up and all kinds of things, but I want to make sure we're listening to you at the same time. Got an idea or insights? Email me, info at openfieldradio.com. I'd love to hear from you. Suggestions are always welcome. And as I mentioned in earlier episodes, season three of Open Field Radio is now coming to you in HD audio because it's the hip factor, right? That's just how cool we are. And so we hope you enjoy it. The clarity, the everything that comes with HD. You know what? You got an HD TV in your house. I'm sure you do. Well, now you have it in your podcast as well. No need to thank us because it's what friends do at Open Field Radio. We got Carl McDonald from West Texas talking to us about saffron in plus or minus 90 seconds. Open Field Radio. Remember that time your dad walked in and said, get off the couch and get a job? And you're like, a job? Come on. Well, here's one to throw in the mix. Skip the job. How about a career at Gowan? Maybe you're in agriculture. Maybe you're in science. Maybe you're none of that. Check it out at gowanco.com slash careers. Great opportunities available, and they're all cool. Careers right here in America and around the world. Come see it for yourself. That's gowanco.com slash careers. And tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. Raising the hip factor in agriculture. Yeah. Open Field Radio. So you know when you're digging around online and you find those lists of if you like this, then that, well, this one's pretty cool. Maybe it's one of those they know you by the company you keep kind of things. But I found a list that said if you like Open Field Radio, then you might like these podcasts. Check it out. How about Smartless with Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes, and Will Arnett? Not bad. How about the Ben Shapiro show from the Daily Wire? How about Dateline NBC? How about the Daily Show from the New York Times? That's only the biggest podcast in the world. NPR News and Conan O'Brien's podcast. You know what? You know them by the company they keep. 
That's pretty good company. That's why you listen to Open Field Radio. This is Larry Jamison from Maple Grove, Minnesota, and I'm driving across the great state of Iowa and listening to Open Field Radio. Connecting with the best audience in ag podcasts. One episode at a time, one listener at a time. Open Field Radio. Let's do this. Open Field Radio Season 3, Episode 6. Carl McDonald, Saffron. It all starts right now. Well, this is kind of cool because I found you through a friend that found an Instagram post. And he sent it to me and he said, hey, check this out. And it was all about Saffron and you guys. I'm super curious. This has all been really interesting. I mean, about a year ago, Eating Well featured an article on us. And then after that, Texas Monthly picked us up uh, earlier this year. That was right before we really uh, like planted and instead had the season kind of kick off here. Since then, like we've had two news media's local out uh, filming us. We've had several newspapers that have recorded audio and sent it to others, and <laughs> just lots of different things that get posted. And we, we we never know where it's showing up, but it's really cool to see how the the story gets spread. Yeah, I've got a buddy in Lubbock, and he's also a farmer. They've got a cotton farm out in Floyd Ada. Oh, okay, okay. And so I shot him a message and said, hey, I'm going to talk to these saffron folks down your way. And he goes, oh, yeah, yep, they're all over the place right now. <laughs> yeah, they're popular. Whole family down there, oh, they're real popular. So I thought, well, okay, somebody knows what's going on, so it's all good. Yeah, so one of, I, I came into to work. So I also work for Edward Jones. I'm a financial advisor. Oh, okay, so, cool. So if, if farming makes sense on paper, that's what I'm trying to prove here. Um, so, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so anyways, uh, the the part uh, that's funny is I came into work one day and, and another guy poked his head in the door and he said, if I see your face on one more publication or news uh, news media or some other outlet, I, I'm going to quit. <laughs> right. Well, good <laughs> right. for you. Fair that's, enough, a, that's, fair a, that's a good sign. That's a really good sign. <laughs> that's great. Well, okay, so let's let's back and let's jump ahead, back up, whatever we're going to do. Saffron. Now, in this day and age, uh, every time I pick up Instagram, every time I do anything, I see somebody growing something new, not and not new, but something I hadn't thought of, or you know, they're like, man, there's really a market for this or this is. How did you wind? How did you wind up in saffron of all things? Great question. Um, the really short answer to that is, I wanted something that I could grow here in West Texas that. I didn't have to fight with. As I started to research saffron more and more, I realized all right, it regenerates. It's dormant during the hottest months of the summer. It has a very short season that I have to, to really be hands-on with it. And the rest of the time, uh, I'm able to interact with customers and other people that are interested in saffron. I thought that fits me and it fits our opportunity really well. We only have about 15 acres where we're at. I, I took a a trip to California on an ag leadership class with LSU. And we, we went there, their outlook on ag is completely different. It's price per acre, price per square foot. And I thought, well, you know, that's, a, that's different. I don't, that means I don't really have to have, you know, a massive amount of equipment or large acres to, to actually get into farming. So if, if that's true and it, I can make the, you know, the accounting part of it work out, I can, you know, we can make a profit on something really small how do I do that? And as I continued to search for, for things that were, you know, high, high revenue, high profit on, on small scale, saffron kept coming up. I'm like, okay. At the time I didn't even know what saffron was. Never heard of it, never used it, never did anything with it. But the, the one key thing that kept me coming back to it, I kept seeing in all these articles, if you can, if you can grow it, you should, if you can, you should. Now, what do you mean if you can and why? 
So the if you can part is it just doesn't do well in a lot of the world um, because of the humidity or because of the climate or because of certain conditions. The other part was I kept seeing little studies here and there about medicinal use for saffron. And I thought, okay, look, I don't, culinary wise, I don't really know what the attraction is for, for people, but I'm, I'm happy to sell it for that reason. But on the medicinal side, some of the things that people were doing research on were just remarkable. Things like macular degeneration, that was one of the biggest ones that's been known for um, recently, gut health, things like that. As we come out of COVID, there's a lot of people that are experiencing gut health issues. And I thought, well, that's kind of fitting. All right. But then there's other things that kept coming up like ovarian cancer or other pieces that have interested me here more lately has been the early onset dementia. There's a lot of research going on right now where taking one strand a day for you know up to 20 days, people have noted, even the ones taking it have noted, I don't, I don't have as cloudy a conversation anymore. And so those medicinal part properties are really what turned me on to saffron and what got me interested into it. And I, it's not that I'm not interested from a culinary aspect. My kids have baked things and taken them to baked good competitions and, and won reserve champion and other things <laughs> from a culinary aspect. So we're definitely in it for the food. Uh, but at the same time, my interest has always been, all right, maybe there's something more here that than there is just on the consume, you know, to consume it as, as a food. You're in West Texas. Where are you in West Texas, first of all? What's your climate like? And how does that benefit saffron? Sure. So we're just south of Lubbock by about 15 minutes or so. Um, our climate is just a dry, arid climate most of the time. I mean, we get 18 inches of rain, annual rainfall. Um, the the general, I'd say general feel is that it's a it's a pretty dry climate overall. I'd say it's more like the New Mexico, Arizona, and Southern California type climate. The part that seemed to match for me was when I look at Iran, Afghanistan, Northern Africa, Spain, a lot of the places where this is grown for a commercial production, it's very similar. Uh, so the, the climate uh, there and where we are in West Texas seems to be pretty similar. You're listening to Open Field Radio. So here you go. EcoSwing from Gowan, USA is an OMRI-listed botanical fungicide created using proprietary plant extracts. Gotta love it. EcoSwing is labeled for use on many different crops to control powdery mildew, botrytis, monolinea, alternaria, and several other diseases. And it's a global leader in fungicidal control of several key pathogens. EcoSwing makes a valuable addition to your integrated pest management program. Add another mode of action to your disease control defense and combat possible resistance from overuse of other actives. EcoSwing. Always read and follow label directions from Gowan Company. Greatness is hard to come by, but it's my job to find it. Open Field Radio. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. It's that simple. It's that one degree of separation. It's where ag and life collide. Open Field Radio, wherever podcasts are found. I feel like the more shows we do, the more we get to know each other. You know what I mean? I know you, you know me. Oh, look, we're just regular people, right? I mow my yard, you mow your yard. Regular stuff. And when it comes to promoting open field radio, I need regular people to tell other regular people this show is happening. So tell somebody. Knock on somebody's door, call them up, send them a text, whatever, and tell them you're listening to open field radio, and by golly, they should be too. 
It'll be awesome, I promise, because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. Quick shout out to some folks we know are listening to Open Field Radio. Big hello to Nashville, Tennessee, Denver, Colorado, Columbus, Indiana, Old Bridge, New Jersey, Rogers, Arkansas, Paris, France, Peterborough, Canada, and Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks for listening. From the Gowan Global Studio deep inside the Lee Hotel, this is Open Field Radio. I went to your website and I was reading the about us section in your website and you have a fascinating backstory <laughs> as to how you wound up a in Texas, leaving Texas, come back to Texas and then Saffron and according to your site anyway, Saffron and 2020, as you put it, the year you know, everybody wants to forget. Can you talk right. me through that story? Sure. I started a career with John Deere, uh, which really opened my eyes to all kinds of things. Uh, so I went for five and a half years and worked in Des Moines for the Precision Ag Factory, and a, a lot of our the products that I worked on at that time were focused on uh, auto track and precision applications. And so I got exposure to a lot of different crops um, really early on. And then being in Iowa, they say I think everyone in Texas has a pretty strong umbilical cord because they leave, but they come back really fast. Um, so when we, we moved up to Des Moines, I started looking, I think, uh, we're 10 hours from home we're 10 hours from where we were raised and born and all that good stuff. So how can we get back home? And then I determined or discovered that deer had field positions. And so, uh, North Arkansas and North and South Louisiana territories were all open at the same time. And I interviewed for one of those three and I asked for North Arkansas and they said, now we need you in North Louisiana because we need somebody that can drive the precision ag in that, in that space down there. I said, okay. So I moved there and didn't expect to stay long. I really, I just moved there and um, just absolutely fell in love with uh, North Louisiana. It, it was more like East Texas, what we were, what we were raised in. And eight years later, so I, and I told my wife, I said, I just have to be in the position 18 months. Eight, eight years later, we left kicking and screaming. And so really just loved, loved the time. But what brought us over was um, my brother and sister-in-law, uh, Andy, who also works for Don Deere, they made a, a conscious decision to move their family from a church in Lubbock to, to go and, and kind of rebuild a church that's there in New Home. Um, and I don't know that rebuild is necessarily the right word, but the, the attendance was down below 10. And so they made the conscious decision, hey, we're, we're going to go to church here and try to help this effort and, and try to help them get back to where it's, it's healthy again. And I'd heard about that, and I thought, well, man, if, if I could get out there, uh, you know, find a job and get out there and do something, I, I'd love to, to be a part of that. And during that eight-year time frame, I really kind of thought, All right, how can I – I want to get into agriculture. I want to do something either on the side or permanently with agriculture. And it kind of just took that with me. When we got the opportunity, I, I found a job that, that opened up uh, in Tohoka, which is a little further south of us there. Um, and got us moved out to West Texas, and we, we got to, to go out there and start rebuilding the church or, or kind of reviving an effort there all together as, as two families. From Texas to Iowa to Louisiana and now back to Texas for a noble cause. I love that. Fantastic. Families involved. Two families involved. Now, that's a lot of personalities and a lot of dynamic. If both families have their own jobs, their own houses, their own lives going on, but when you combine all that, check this out. We... we moved in with them um, at the time. And so that put all 10 of us under one roof. Um, and so it, it causes enough stress, um, <laughs> sure. but it, it, sure. it was okay. I mean, we, we had done it before. We've, um, we actually lived together a lot when we moved to Des Moines, we lived in their basement uh, at the time. And so when we moved to Lubbock, it was kind of like, all right, we'll, we'll do this again, no problem. And 
we, my wife and I started considering, all right, let's, I, I bought two pieces of land. I'd like to build a house. And so we started working on plans for that. And Lanil, Andrea's sister said, well, why don't we just build a house for all of us? And I kind of thought, uh, okay, you're crazy, but I know this. <laughs> so what does that mean? She said, well, let's just see if we can get space for all 10 of us. All right, okay. So we started designing it and we quickly figured out that it was going to be way out of our cost range to to do anything because at that time everybody was moving south out of Lubbock. All of the construction was going out of sight and just um, being really unaffordable. And so we we cut that off. I sold the two pieces of land that I had and just kind of sat and thought, all right, now what do we do? And so I, I made the offer. I said, we have the house. We have the space that we want. We have the barn that we want. Why don't I just add on to this house and just make it what we are all kind of after anyways? And they all looked at it and thought, you know, yeah, we can do that. So we just added on to their house, added on three extra rooms, then a pantry and an extra office. And we all live in there very comfortably. And it's not, you know, we're not in each other's way. We're in each other's hair, but we're not in each other's way. <laughs> Fair enough. So that's kind of how that came to be. And then, you know, 2019, you know, we made the move out and then all of a sudden COVID hit. And so everybody went indoors. And at that time I was already researching Saffron and uh, kind of what we wanted to do. And it really just gave us an opportunity to say, all right, now's the time. Let's just go outside and do something. And so at one point I asked them, I said, hey, what do y'all think about farming something out here in this space? And they said, yeah, well, it sounds like an okay idea. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know yet. And the next thing you know, I come home and I say, well, I bought 20,000 bolts for saffron. They said, what? I don't understand. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so everybody just kind of lost their mind for a few minutes. And I said, all right, hang on. It's, it's new. It's it, it, no, nobody knows about it. And that was really what uh, drew me in as well. One was all these little characteristics that I talked about earlier, but the other big part was nobody's doing this. So it's a space that we kind of get to get in and define ourselves. How how do we tackle these problems? We get, we get to do that. And the lack of information was one thing that kind of um, interested me as well. I love that, that it came out of, a, out of a need to be outside. It's like, let's get out of here. Let's yes. go outside. Okay, now what are we going to do? Absolutely. So what happens? You get 20,000 bulbs and you're like, okay, kids, let's go. Um, how does, what, I mean, first of all, the kids are like, yeah, you're out of your mind. And secondly, I mean, where does yeah. this start? How do you, I mean, you know nothing about nothing. Right. Well, I, I told them, I said, uh, all right, so here are the details we know. It has, it needs to be planted about six inches deep and they need to be planted about, you know, three, four, six inches apart. So how do we do that? And we all kind of sat around and talked about it. Well, we don't have an implement that we can just do that with. How do we do any of this? I don't, I don't know. And so we just started kind of making a list and one is we need to be able to, to chisel the ground up, get it broken open because it was, it was a land that was in CRP. It had, hadn't been touched in years. And uh, so we were going to have to open it up and, and get it kind of back to life. The soil profile didn't look bad, but there's no organic material. So I started to look for a source of cow manure or some other manure that we could mix into the soil and, and really work into it. And I found a, a pretty decent source of cow manure. And so we, started working that end. And actually the first year we worked in cow manure, some organic matter that we bought, and then some horse manure. And we actually tracked how many flowers came up in each of those areas. But the, the how question really was, all right, how do, you know, what do we do with this? And so we kind of built a rudimentary type uh, plow, which ended up being more like a crust buster kind of thing. And we opened it up, but found out that we can't do six at a time. So we were wanting to do, you know, six rows at a time because they were so close together, it would end up closing up 
uh, on the on the other three. So we took three of those off and just left three on and pulled open three rows. And then we built this contraption, which you probably see on the website. It's a, a set of it's a stand of about uh, 15 PVC tubes that are all I think two inch PVC. And uh, each of those rows are five. So five by three it makes 15 drops that we would do. And so we basically would take this and set it down in the trench that we just opened up, drop 15 bulbs in, move it down, drop 15 more in, and keep doing that over until all 20,000 were down on the ground. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, so, oh my gosh. <laughs> and so the first day, I think the first time we made a pass, I think it took like two hours for us to get from one end of the field to the other. And, and all the kids kind of looked up and said, oh, my goodness, this, yeah. is, this is terrible. This is going to take forever. <laughs> and I said, okay, guys, hold on, wait a minute. We, we just did this for the first time. Let's turn around and, and, and go back. So we opened up three more rows, and we went back. And uh, when we did, we ended up doing it in, I think, 45 minutes. And I said, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. And I said, all right, well, that's that's the attitude. Let's do it again. <laughs> so we did that. And uh over the course of about two weeks, we finally got all 20,000 bulbs in. And we planted, you know, a, a, and we're not doing this, you know, eight hours a day by any means. We, we did it for like three or four hours in the evening, one evening, and then another, we made another pass another evening, and then we had, we were busy and had to wait. So we, you know, three evenings go by and uh, we do it again. And then we finally get to a Saturday where we plant most of the day that Saturday. Um, and actually, the first time we did this was on Labor Day. So we spent most of the day on Labor Day doing this really that was the first day that we did all the discovery like all right we can't uh, we can't open up that many rows we're going to do something different and so that's when we kind of trim things back just to figure out how we actually get on the ground this year and then the second year we talked about it and i said well if we could just find a way to drop bulbs in when we had the implement that we're opening with in the ground we we could at least you know maybe get that far and so that's when we kind of put our heads together for the next year and as soon as we started talking about that, I said, well, I went ahead and ordered 20,000 more bulbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look out. Again. <laughs> and oh so gosh. before we knew it, so year two, we're planting another 20,000. Plus we have the 20,000 in there that are regenerating. Uh, and as I dug those up, we started looking at it saying, uh, we're getting about three to five per every bulb that we planted last year. Oh, man. Uh, which the, peop- the people I were talking to said, that's fantastic. That's really good. And I started telling them that. And, of course, all the kids, you can kind of see the math start working in their head. Like, Wait a minute. We just planted 20,000. Multiply that times three at the worst. That's 60,000 plus the 20,000 you just ordered. That's 80,000 flowers that we're going to be in, you know, coming at us here this next year. And, you know, that didn't even include any of the picking that we did that year. So, I mean, it was it, it was just a fun realization. And, and really, you can tell. I mean, some of the kids enjoy it, and some of them are just – like my daughter is just thrilled with it. She can't wait for flowers to come up and just loves it. Um, and you know, some of the other kids are okay with it, but you know, some of them are just like, Oh, great. Saffron again. <laughs> exactly. But the funny exactly. thing is, is that as this whole thing has evolved, they've all taken on different, uh, different parts of the, what I'd say, just the business. It's, the marketing side was a big question mark for us the first year, it, but we have the product. We were really successful with it, but nobody knew we had it and we had no channel to move this stuff. And there's, you know, normally you'd have a co-op or something you'd take your product to and they'd buy it and distribute it somewhere out in the channel. But there was nothing there for that. And that realization was really hard uh, because I thought, man, we're really good at this, but we're really not because we're not moving any product. This just doesn't work. <laughs> and so that's when the next year, about the time we got started again, the Eating Well magazine picked us up. And 
before we knew it, we had, you know, 50 or 60 orders for half grams of saffron at a time. And I thought, oh, well, this could work. This this might work out. And so some of the kids have taken a, a seat in marketing, and some of them have said, I want to work on the website. Some of them have said, well, I just don't want to, I just want to process. I don't want to, I don't want to plant or, or do some of the other stuff or pick. And so they've all kind of figured out their area that, um, that they want to work in and try to avoid the areas they don't want to the most. And it, it's kind of evened out. I mean, with 10 of us, we've, uh, Andy and Lanil have really, uh, been instrumental in making sure that we get everything picked out of the field in time. And, um, you know, my wife is usually out there, but for the most part, she likes to stay in process. And so my daughter's out there picking flowers and, so everybody's kind of found that area that they like, um, and that's been really interesting to see that take shape. High five to you guys for finding something that uh, somehow, some way, it's it's working. And I don't know why or what, but fantastic. So you put them in the ground. You've got your system in place, so to speak. Flowers start to come up. Yay, it's a great day. We got a flower. Is that how it went? Yeah. I mean, we, we kept watching the field and waiting for something to happen. We get a flower, and then uh, we kind of knew what we were going to have to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, once we started seeing the first flowers come up, it was really exciting. And, you know, we saw 50 or 60 flowers the first, the first time they started coming up. And then, then we saw, you know, up to a hundred or so, and then that stayed that way for a few days. And then all of a sudden it came up to about 3000 and we thought, Oh my goodness, (laughs) we see purple everywhere. And, uh, you know, that was the first year. I mean, this year we, we saw about (laughs) 50,000. Oh my so, gosh! Like this this year, we reached our limit. I mean, after you get, we got to year three, where we've had two years that have exponentially uh, grown and re- regenerated in the ground, and then we've got some that we've mixed in that we planted along the way. And so, yeah, there was there was one day here where it was some of those pictures that you see of Afghanistan, Iran, Spain, where the field is just solid purple from one end to the other, and we we saw that, and I thought we've arrived, we've made it. And, but the problem with that was we couldn't pick them all in two days. And that's usually our, our pick time. If you go out and pick, usually you can wait two days and pick again. Uh, but due to the numbers that we've gotten to here in recent years um, or the last couple of years, we've been picking every day. And so on this particular day, what we saw, I don't know, anywhere from 30 to 50,000. I don't, I really don't know how many it was because we never got through it all. We ended up losing about a half, a five gallon bucket full. And so, that was the that was a challenge for us because we realized all right we've reached our limit now what do we do and so um we're kind of waiting this year now to get to that point and say okay how do we handle this next year what do we what do we do different and really I mean Andy and I look at each other like you know a robot could really do so a world of good here but this is such <laughs> exactly. a complex environment and so many variables that it's just really hard uh, but we're trying to automate the processing side of it because it's more of a controlled environment. Once you get the flower in, if you cut that at the right place, just below the, the petals where they come together at the, at the base of it, everything just kind of falls apart. And then if we can find some automated way to separate that, that would be perfect. And that would give us a real, real good opportunity there. You know, Carl's a nice guy, really nice guy, but don't be fooled. This is hard work. And that doesn't play into whether or not he's a nice guy or not. I get that. But he's being nice is what I'm saying. This is hard work. And I would think that most folks with anything, let alone farming and something that takes all of that kind of day and night, round the clock, seven day a week effort, would probably think on this and go, you know, there's got to be something else I can do. But Carl is committed to this because this is all, emphasis on all, capital letters, done by hand. 
And whether you're planting it and coming up with some kind of cool little way to make that happen or whatever you're doing, nonetheless, you're doing it, and it's all by hand, and it doesn't get any easier. Check this out. Every flower, so if you look at every, uh, it's a stigma. So there's a stigma, there's a stamen, and there's the petals. That's the three main components of the flower itself. The stigma is what uh, everyone you know, calls saffron. And it's the red, the three, typically there's three red strands uh, that come out. We see anomalies where we see four, we see five, we see six. Uh, we haven't seen any more than six, but typically, and we've seen Piro, um, where a flower will come up that had no stigma. But every, every one of those flowers gets touched twice. We pick it out of the field by hand, we go inside and we pull it apart by hand. Uh, and then we put that out on a dehydrating tray uh, that goes into a dehydrator for uh, a very short period of time, usually uh, about uh, 10 to 15 minutes uh, at you know a, a temperature anywhere from 170 to 200 degrees, and then we try to pull those out at just the right kind of moisture content. But each one of those gets done twice. So yeah, we go out and we pick every flower, we bring it inside, and then separate each of those. And so there's usually anywhere from two to five of us sitting around a table just constantly pulling flowers apart um, and then pulling the stigmas out so that we can dehydrate those. Once you get kind of a feel for it, you, it goes pretty quick. The nature of the flower really makes a big difference. So if you get a fresh, nice, crisp flower and you bring it in and you pull it apart, it, it all just it falls apart really well. But if you get if you get one that um, maybe has that you didn't pick, you know, the day after and it, it's been out in the field an additional day, um, it's a little bit softer, and so it becomes really hard to pull apart. And so um, you can see your time almost triple and the amount of time that you have to handle that. Let's just say it takes you know, five to 10 seconds to get a stigma out you know, for each flower uh, on a bad flower, a flower that you, you don't want to work with. It's maybe 10 or 20. <laughs> so Times 10,000, times 30,000, times 50,000. <laughs> <laughs> Five of you sitting around the table looking at more flowers than you've ever seen in your life. Yes, macro numbers. That is absolutely... And, and is it not just the most daunting task in the world? It's it's exhausting. I mean, just you think, all right, you're just sitting around a table. But, you know, when you're doing that after a couple of hours, your back starts to hurt. And, you know, getting up, walking around doesn't really fix it. <laughs> Mine hurts now just listening to you. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, it is hard work. And yeah. that's what people don't realize, you know, why is saffron so expensive? Well, that's it. We that's touched it. those flowers twice uh, um, because it's it, there's not – there's no no mechanization on the harvesting and processing side, and that's just the tough part. Coast to coast and around the world, you're listening to Open Field Radio. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you, right? Gowan USA has a broad selection of herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides to deliver customized solutions for your crops. Gowan provides the right programs to fit your unique needs, standing behind our products with expert service and support. And Gowan USA is family-owned and operated right here in the United States of America for over 55 years. That's a long time. Check it out for yourself at GowanCo.com. And now you know. Open Field Radio. Like, share, subscribe. I love to tell you about things that I like. And that's the only reason I want to tell you about them. And if you're like me, I take notes on post-it notes on anything. I'll write something down. But then what? I lose them, right? Well, here, if you're like me in that way, get yourself the Adobe Scan app. I love this thing. Get it on your phone, right on anything you want. That's right. Get the app out. It's Adobe. Come on. It's going to be quality. Snap a shot of your notes with the camera in the app. Bingo, bango, bongo. You save it. It's a PDF in your phone just as you wrote it. 
From there, you can share it or do whatever else you want to do with it. But the one thing you won't do, I promise you, you won't lose it. Adobe Scan in your favorite app store. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest, Texas Saffron Farmer, Carl McDonald. So you and your brother come from a background of automation and that kind of thought process in agriculture with John Deere and the other things that you have done. Can you explain to me why uh, why saffron, even though it's fragile, I get that, what makes it so difficult for automation? When the flowers come up out of the ground, it comes up with a little bit of leafy foliage. So it's a, it looks like a thin piece of grass. Um, I'd say it looks almost like fescue when it starts coming up, like a, like a clump grass of sorts. And then you'll have the flowers kind of come up through that. And sometimes the flowers will appear first, and that's kind of the ideal condition uh, because then you can reach down, you know, pick up the flower pretty easily. But otherwise, uh, as um, the weeks kind of go by, uh, lower bulbs, as they regenerate um, and the temperature changes, the lower bulbs start to bring on flowers while you've got foliage coming up. And when that happens, you end up with flowers kind of stuck right at the ground and you've got foliage over the top of it. How do you get that out of the ground without damaging the foliage so that you get good regeneration? So human-powered at this point because it, the dexterity and everything needed to make all of that work in a robot is it, just really – that's really difficult to develop. Well, I, but I will say, but, I mean, and you guys are all in, in the automations and those things, but there's some pretty amazing things going on. Maybe there's somebody listening that would go, oh, I know how to make that happen, which would be totally great. Yeah, so come, you just bring, never know. Bring so, it on. Yeah. So, if any of you, so if any of you engineers out there that do listen to this show got an idea, you know where to go. This could be really cool. Once we get inside, you know, once the flowers are picked, that's a little bit more controlled environment. We have figured out some ways to, to maybe automate that process. Um, you know, you'd still have to put the flower at the right part, but we can actually get the flower to kind of separate on its own into the three components, the petals, the stigma, and the stamen. And then if we can get it to just filter out the stigmas, then that's a, that's a large part of the time that we spend too. I mean, we can go out in the field and pick them and that's a pretty fast process compared to the processing side of it. What? Let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about the market for this. When you started this, did you have any idea what the market was for saffron or how to carve a path to it or what you were going to do? Should it be successful? A great question. I, that was really our biggest learning curve the first year. As we started our uh, venture, it, it, we were fairly confident in our, uh, let's just say, farming abilities, even though we didn't have much at all. We felt like we could get it to grow and that we had enough research and digging around to figure out, all right, this will work. We can do this. We can grow it. But And we knew that there was a market. Uh, we just didn't know how to tap into that market. Um, and, you know, the thought is, you know, you create a website and people will find you. Well, that wasn't the case at all because, of course, the Googles and the other um, search engines of the world really kind of open that door when you want to spend some money. And until you have a lot of traffic coming through, they're not going to open that door freely. You know, working with the University of Vermont and a lot of the connections they provide, that really helped us open the door and, and kind of connect with the rest of the Saffron world. Through that opportunity, we were provided um, as a as a resource to reach out to for the Eating Well magazine that wrote an article and included, I think, three or four different saffron producers across the United States. And throughout that article, we could see that several others were starting to pick up on it. And then a year later, that led to Texas Monthly picking us up and featuring an article on that. And then after the Texas Monthly article kind of went out, there's been, um, I'd say their reach was a lot, a lot bigger um, and a broader audience in general. And then local newspapers and local news 
um, medias have have reached out to us to to kind of retell that story. But the one thing about the marketing piece that has always perplexed me is just the you know, how do you go about creating an effective marketing plan for a channel that exists, but you have no way to uh, to know how to tap into it? Because there's you see it on the shelves in the stores, but those sources are almost all imported. And so, you know, you you call up a spice company and say, you know, like a McCormick or a, another popular spice brand, and you say, hey, I, I, I'm interested. I'm growing saffron. I'm, I'm interested in seeing if I can use your distribution channel. And, um, you know, they say, well, we, we get our product out of Spain or something like that. And, and so it's kind of a challenge. And so we kind of backed off of that approach to stay more at home and, and operate more in an area that we have influence in. So, like I said, the first year we held on to a lot of product almost until the end of the year, which is not a bad thing because the, the product improves from the time you pick it out to two years. And after two years, it starts to degrade over time. Um, which is an interesting fact, and it really helps us out. Um, but we've also never carried over product past uh, about a month or so from the the previous year. So, at it, when it's when it's prime, we've been able to sell it and and move it to uh, a source, and we've never had anything make it uh, past a year really that um, that we've had. So, marketing, yeah, it's it's just one of those things where right now what we're doing is just telling our story and people have really drawn and loved that story. And we really appreciate that because that's just what we want to be able to do. Um, you know, we don't want to push something that somebody didn't want, but we, we want to be able to tell our story and, and people have embraced that. And that's what has been really exciting. Well, it's a great story. And I mean, I think it's so American. It's so Americana, if you will, during the hard time you went, you know what, we're going to do something new and different. And off you went and you're making the best of it. You mentioned producers. Are there many uh, saffron producers in America? If most of it's imported, my guess is no. And because of the climates that we talked about earlier, my guess is no. But of the ones that are here, A, how many are there? And B, how much do they produce versus the, the imported? I mean, I personally know of, of maybe 10 um, producers that, that do more than just a, a few hundred bulbs in their backyard. Uh, there, I think there's a couple in California, Washington, a few others on the eastern seaboard uh, areas that, that are kind of attached to closer to that University of Vermont area. But largely, I don't know anybody commercially uh, doing this <laughs> in the middle of the United States. And I, I know as soon as I'm saying that, there's probably somebody up there jumping up and down saying, <laughs> sure. I'm doing it, I'm doing it. You know it. <laughs> Somebody's yeah. going to reach out, that's for sure. How much land does it take you know, to be successful at it? How many acres are you talking about? So we only have a half acre and we did a half acre, you know, like I said, with the first year we did 20,000, the second year we did 20,000 and the third year we, we kind of replanted some of the areas that we found out were not as successful. So we didn't necessarily choose a half acre by any numerical means. We just chose a half acre because it's larger than a few hundred bulbs and it was not too big that we couldn't handle at least up until now. So, I mean, if you want the numbers, I'm happy to share them. So in general, if you do the research, um, saffron it, it will produce a revenue of about $60,000 per acre. If you are selling the bulbs and producing the bulbs in large quantity and, and you resell those, that's about $200,000 an acre. Those are really macro numbers. They're big numbers. And you look at that and think, wow, that's that's crazy. But if you also think, all right, I'm doing a half acre here and I want to get to an acre or two acres, you know, that's a really great revenue stream. However, do you understand how much work that that really takes to get that out and to drive a hundred thousand 
dollars worth of product, you know, through your process and get it dried and into a product that you can then return. I mean, that's a lot of hands. That's a lot of flowers. It's just a lot of moving parts at this point. And so the half acre has kind of allowed us to say, all right, economies of scale. If we want to go bigger, how do we do that? And and that's kind of where we're at right now. How do we, how do we make this more efficient to where it's manageable, to where it fits kind of an American culture um, stream because, you know, paying somebody minimum wage to go out and pick flowers, that takes off a really massive chunk of the the theoretical revenue that would be coming from this. Well, I love the idea with this is that when I ask you how many acres does it take and you say, I got a half acre, this is a very <laughs> functional, if you will, kind of process you've laid out here of like, well, we started like this and it goes like this and we can grow it to wherever we want to grow it, but there's some things laying right. out there that we have to take into consideration should we do that. We don't get that very often. We talk to the farmers with, you right. know, I got, you know, thousands of acres and you're like, holy cow, how do you do that? This is great. You take it down to the very small nuts and bolts of it to figure out how it's supposed right. to go and then where do you go with it from there. So let me ask you, what is the market price of saffron right now per pound? Oh, per pound. Uh, so typically, uh, and I don't know why, but generally speaking, we don't sell by the pound. We sell by the grams and the kilos. Okay. <laughs> and so a kilo being roughly two pounds, uh, I have to do the math on it. So it's one gram is roughly six, anywhere from 40 to $60. Uh, so multiply that times a thousand and you're up to about forty to 60000 um, on that. So, yeah, that sounds about right. Wow. Yeah, a very small quantity is worth a lot, and it's not necessarily worth a lot, but it's very expensive to produce as well. So, hard to, I mean, it's hard to say that. I mean, yes, you've got – I could sit there and hold it in front of you and say, yes, this is worth forty dollars to $60,000, um, but at the same time, I'd also end up saying it, it costs me a lot of time to get that. <laughs> what is your favorite thing about saffron farming? So I think it's the undiscovered part. Um, my The whole thing that turned me on to saffron was this big question mark that I, I saw in article after article about its medicinal qualities. I appreciate uh, that there's a big following for the, the culinary side of it and, and certainly want to support that. Uh, but I also think that there's a big undiscovered portion out there that saffron can do. There's already massive things that it's being prescribed for and there's lots of other research going on that says it's competitive in. So the first one is macular degeneration. It's kind of a, a strange thing where the degradation, you know, in your eyes and there are people that are actually prescribing a quantity of saffron, you know, to take as a daily supplement and it prevents it from progressing. That's a really interesting aspect when you compare it to the fact that it's really known for its gut health. So a lot of the things that we talked about with, you know, COVID uh, kind of create some digestive problems. This has a, a very positive uh, gut health improvement. But the other ones that are out there that really attract me are the attention deficit disorder and types of competitive studies that are being doing, done right now. So I read one that was done, I believe, in Europe, and the study effectively said the same uh, quantity given uh, against a Ritalin or a Prozac was just as effective. When you think about that and the parents that are, you know, taking maybe a synthetic type drug for, a, you know, attention disorders or attention uh, challenges that, that kids are, are using or even adults are using, to be able to say, hey, I've got a natural competitor to that, I, I think that's a pretty substantial uh, attraction. The other big one out there is dementia, early onset dementia. When you mention that, I mean, people 
are just naturally struck. I'm like, I know somebody with dementia. After 20 days of taking one strand, uh, which is you know basically three pieces of, of uh, the stigmas, people have stated, hey, I've even been engaged in conversation. I, I've realized I'm not as cloudy about that conversation as I once was. After they've you know taken us for 20 plus days, it starts to kind of clear things up. So I'm saying all of that, but I also say that there's not a lot of substantial proof and resources out there as to what's doing all of that that good work. And I really think that there's, for me, uh, you know, you ask the question, well, you know, what is it? And it's that that's the part that drives me is maybe we have something here that can help in some very critical areas that we have gaps in the medicinal areas of the of the world. And it's a challenge because I know we're competing against major medical companies and major pharmaceutical companies, which rely a lot on synthetics to make a profit. And so, you know, something natural comes into the world and it's usually kind of pushed aside. But really, I think the proof would be in the pudding is that if it gets prescribed and it starts to work and if we get some clinical trials and some other things out there that I think that attention will change very quickly. Amazing. I lost my father-in-law to dementia and my sister right now as we speak is in the later half of dementia. And so um, what okay. I would give for anything that would have helped either one of them, God bless you for that kind of thing. That is uh, that is pretty pretty intense. <laughs> If someone wants to uh, wants to find your product, how do they find you? Sure. So uh, we have a website. It's uh, txsaffron.com. So t-x-s-a-f-f-r-o-n.com. Uh, that's kind of our uh, what we've stuck to. Um, our farm. We've effectively called it Meraki Meadows. And a lot. Of the next question that usually comes along is why Why do you call it that? And so we as two families. You know, typically when you start a farm, you just kind of throw your family name up there and call it farm or or something but we had two families kind of join I, I challenged the kiddos to to find something unique find something that would make people ask that question and they did a really good job and meraki means to put something of yourself into what you do and that has fit us really well and, and it's fit um, our endeavor really well as well doing a thing on the show i just started doing this because it kind of felt right. I feel like the American farmer is kind of beat up right now. It's a tough market. It's a tough time in, it's just a tough time, but I'm also looking for ways to encourage them. And maybe you've got a thought mm-hmm. for the American farmer, just some encouragement, a thank you on anything. Uh, you are a farmer. Uh, maybe there's some wisdom there that somebody else needs to hear. You got anything? Absolutely. Um, I would say it's the very uh, DNA of of an American farmer that I've always loved and admired is just the determination and their love to produce something. And that really shows whenever you, you go visit an area that's maybe drought stricken and you talk to a farmer there and he, he may have gotten paid, um, you know, what he normally makes through insurance or be, you know, reimbursed or at least covered his costs, but his whole attitude and demeanor is just that. And, you know, you, you talk to a farmer that their, their true heart is in producing something. And if you truly possess that or if that's something that um, is at your core, then you know the gratification that producing something, you know, out of the ground uh, into a finished product can be. What I would say to anyone like that is there's, you don't have to own thousands of acres to be a farmer. You don't have to own 500 acres to be a farmer. There are great revenue-generating products out there. I would say find something that you can make it your niche. Find something that you can be passionate about. Find something that um, that you, you want 
see through and um, and just go after it. You know, you don't have to throw your life savings at it. Do it small uh, and start small. But farmers that have thousands and three thousands and many thousands of acres didn't get there overnight. They did that through generations. And so I'd say anyone thinking about starting that, you be the first generation and, and start something small and, and make it big. Big may be a half acre. You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gowan Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. The views and opinions expressed by the guests of Open Field Radio are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the program. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission.